What's going on, Common Ground West? This is Anthony again, back with another question and response podcast. Um, per usual, major caveats with this thing is that these are responses, not final answers. Um, I'm even uh, not all the way certain on many of these. It's just where I am now and how I would engage with some of these questions. Many of them don't have extremely clear uh, final answers. Um, there's various levels of clarity. And that's um, one of the things that we engage in with as we mature in our faith is uh, what questions have, have more mystery and which ones have more clarity. And So, the, yeah, I'm just in, contributing to the dialogue and really honored to get to be invited into this process with you all and to keep participating in this dialogue with you all. So, uh, per usual then, yeah, I just want to maintain that posture of humility. Uh, as I give responses, I submit them to you not trying to control what you think and just inviting you to wrestle with the text with me and keep trusting scripture, that scripture is good and fruitful and trustworthy and foundational for Christian belief and practice and to not let either the abuses of scripture or the harm that scripture has, uh, has been, yeah, has been distorted or used to do harm, not, not let that make us not keep trusting, that if we keep wrestling with the actual text itself, um, we, we move closer to faithfulness. So with those caveats, let's jump in. Um, first question is, what does it mean for a believing spouse to quote-unquote sanctify a non-believing spouse? What does it mean for a believing spouse to sanctify, quote-unquote, a non-believing spouse? I believe this question is in response to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, some verses that we did not read in the past couple weeks when we've talked about singleness and marriage. In verse uh, 13, no, 12, Paul writes, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the believer leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Um, so the question, again, is uh, what does it mean for a believing spouse to sanctify the non-believing spouse? So uh, let's just, in context, when Paul is writing a letter, he's not just writing to give his, like, theological take on things, kind of abstract or detached from a real-life situation. He's helping them navigate uh, their singleness or their marriages in light of the situation. Um, and so in this case, his goal with writing this, what impact he's trying to have with this letter, is to, not, is to discourage believers from divorcing their non-believing spouses, from being the ones that initiate that. There must be a temptation for them to say, oh, Okay, I'm holy now, set apart, and part of God's people, and somehow I wonder if being a part of this marriage with the non-believer will somehow harm me or defile me, or maybe the marriage is like not valid in God's eyes now uh, because I'm a Christian. And I think main, Paul's goal is just to discourage that. So along the way, he says that a, a believing spouse can sanctify a non-believing spouse. Now. It's clear from even within this own text that he's not saying, like, sanctify is sometimes a verb used to say, it just means make holy, to make someone holy, to make something holy. And that is used for believers when they come to know Jesus, that when they have this 
change in status with, with God and they become uh, a Christian, uh, God's, uh, a, a member of God's people, um, that uh, they are made holy, they are sanctified, they are made a saint. And that's why Paul can call Christians saints. And so, but in this case, uh, there, I don't think he's describing that because he actually says, you know, by you staying with them, you might be the one that helps lead them to be saved. So it's not like the non-believing spouse loses their personal agency um, in making the choice of whether or not to come to faith in Jesus and then being judged by that choice. That still is on them. But I think it's more of an encouragement to the spouse to say, hey, uh, you aren't going to be defiled. Your marriage isn't going to be defiled or invalid because of their non-believing person. But rather, you, as a saint, as a person who's set apart by God, can make that, that marriage is still valid, that house, your home is still valid. Um, and so to be uh, sanctified is not just to be a, a, a personal, or not just a personal or spiritual holiness, but also can just be just the uh, uh, set apart is the most general definition of that word, like still set apart for God's purposes, still set apart for God's plan, still seen as in the right and, and how, way, how God sees it. And so I think his main point is just to say, your marriage is still set apart for God's purposes, still fits within his purposes, still set apart uh, for his plan by virtue of you being a holy person. Um, and so don't give up on it just because your spouse is not holy. Now, I don't think he's trying to, you know, I don't think he's advocating that you would go marry a non-believer for that purpose. And elsewhere in that same, pa- same chapter, he discourages that, doesn't want people to be unequally yoked. And so if you're starting a marriage, don't, it's not smart to start with... Uh, marrying a non-believing spouse, a non-believing person, and then in hopes of maybe you would save them, um, is more saying if you're in a situation where you came to faith later after your marriage and your spouse didn't, or um, you started out faithful and your spouse you know, left Christianity in the middle of it, I think it's more trying to deal with that potential problem. So um, that's what I think is going on there. Um, but I'm open to feedback. It's, I mean, it's definitely using language that we wouldn't normally use and... Um, trying to navigate that together, which will be did. All right, next question. <clears throat> Elliot Reese asks, how did Jesus rescue Jonah after being eaten? How did Jesus rescue Jonah after being eaten? Uh, so this sounds like a question that the parents, uh, Adam and Andrea, should have answered. <laughs> uh, but we'll have fun with it. Um, short of it is, man, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, if he's that kind of power, like all miracles are, are open, right? So once you say, hey, we believe God can raise the dead. Um, there's kind of nothing that he can't do at that point. So if God wants a person to be eaten by a fish and then keep them alive and then save them, then uh, God can do that, clearly. If he can raise a piece from the dead, he can do that. Um, I don't, I mean, but a broader story about Jonah, um, I am more take the reading that many ancient Jewish people took as well, that it's more of a satirical parable that challenges the people of Israel and their faithlessness um, and struggle. So um, the people of Israel, their, their calling was to be a light to the nations and to be, um, to kind of not just be privileged in themselves, but to, you know, be a light to the nations. That God would go through them to bless all nations and restore all nations. And so um, they've not done that well. And, you know, the Old Testament is a story of how they've not done that well. And so here's the calling where, Jonah's called to go bless all nations, to go prophecy and tell God's good news, to um, 
the Assyrians, people in Nineveh. And Jonah is resistant to that call, just as Israel has been resistant to that call to bless all nations. Uh, and then, uh, shockingly, he finally gets to Nineveh, and, 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 the, and they repent immediately. And that's also a challenge to how the people of Israel regularly did not repent when they heard the prophets uh, preach to them. Instead, they mistreated the prophets. So it's both a, kind of a, a, sat, a, a critical satire against the way the people of Israel have failed to be elected to the nations, and a, a critical kind of satire parable of how they've failed to hear their prophets. I think that's like kind of the function that Jonah plays for Old Testament Israel at the time it was written. So thanks for making it hard, Reese fam, asking that question. Uh, next question. In the early church, how did Jewish culture compare to that of Greco-Roman culture and the church's teaching regarding sexuality and hierarchy of men and women? So how did the Jewish culture compare to that of Greco-Roman and the church's teaching regarding sexuality and hierarchy of men and women? All right, let's just, like, I guess there's three groups. Jewish culture, Greco-Roman culture, early church. Um, and then two categories for each one. Sexuality, hierarchy of men and women. Let's start with hierarchy of men and women. So in Jewish culture, uh, the, uh, I guess I'll start. Greco-Roman culture, yeah, men were seen as citizens. They had rights. Uh, they had power over, over their whole household, including their wives, uh, could do harm to them. Uh, women had no rights and privileges uh, compared to the men. Um, and in Jewish culture, it's, you know, there's some similarities there. Uh, women's, uh, women could not learn from a rabbi. Uh, they could not you know, do higher Jewish higher ed. Uh, women could uh, not get as close to the Holy of Holies, the center of the temple in Jerusalem, as men could. Um, yeah, uh, women, uh, their testimony uh, in a court case did not hold weight. Their witness did not hold as much weight. And so, yeah, clearly women had a lower status. Uh, but uh, that's where the early church, beginning with Jesus, turns it on its head. He had female followers that were learning from him. Uh, the first witnesses to the resurrection were shockingly women. Uh, they did not try to change that story to let it be men. Women were the ones that did that. Um, and then we read, you know, on Sunday the, that women uh, have uh, authority over their husbands' bodies. Uh, that's unique. Um, and women are, there's a mutual submission. Uh, even First Timothy 2, which is often appealed to as a reason not to have women in leadership, uh, actually has within it things that validate women, that women are to learn in the same posture and same approach that men get to learn in. And like the thought that you would get to learn is on track towards being able to teach. So like uh, the, the early, through Jesus, the early church turns on its head, that hierarchy, and uh, a lot of women flock to the church uh, for that reason. And so, um, yeah, um, the... On sexuality, uh, Roman sexuality was was kind of off the rails. Uh, I, don't, I mean, they had standards, but their standards were almost only based on social status. So a man who was a citizen could use anyone of lower social status than him as a, as a sexual outlet. He could have sex with male and female slaves, male and female prostitutes, young boys, um, that, uh, and yeah, he had, there was a freedom to do that, to have sex with only the, the wife for procreation and do recreational sex with anyone that he wanted that was so long as it wasn't another Roman citizen's wife. Uh, 
um, that that would be too much equal social status, and that's what was frowned upon. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously a lot more tolerance for homoeroticism, so long as it was in the right context. Um, whereas Jewish culture had much more conservative sexuality, Leviticus 18, you know, that would still drive a lot of their beliefs on that. I mean, obviously they still failed at living those standards, but their actual standards were sex within a, a marriage. Um, there was a little more tolerance for polygamy based on, you know, Old Testament examples of that, that I think the Old Testament itself would critique by the way the narrative functions, but um, there were some still in the first century polygamy. But I think that's why, you know, also the, the divorces became much more, they were looking for a loophole for easy divorces. And that's where Jesus talks to them in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, because their way of still uh, dealing, uh, obeying the Old Testament standard of sex belongs only in a marriage between a man and a woman, uh, but still wanting to have sex with someone other than their wife, they would just make divorce an easier process. So Jesus critiques that. But that was the most liberal thing for them, most progressive thing. Everything else was, I think, more a more conservative thing. And of course, uh, I mean, I'm sure they broke their standards. We have examples of that. But those were at least the official standards. Um, the early church, um, I think Jesus, here's the thing. I know Jesus is very, in so many ways, he opens up the floodgates, you know, with uh, uh, progressive moves, like with women and, um, and leadership and that kind of thing. With sexuality, if anything, he kind of gets stricter, honestly. He's, he's almost even more restrictive than what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in the first century Jewish world. Their area of pushing the boundary was related to divorce, and he clearly tries to push against that as much as possible, still giving concession for it in cases of abuse and adultery, but not trying to make it a thing. And um, and, though, and so against Greco-Roman culture as well. I mean, he's, he's uh, the early church was... Um, such a surprise to say things like, yeah, the husband's body uh, belongs to the woman. He must yield himself to her and that the only appropriate sexual outlet was within that kind of marriage. Uh, or you just rely on the spirit's power to help you have self-control. That was like the expect expectation. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think I answered those questions. In general, the early church was far more uplifting to the equality of women and other, others that were lower social status and much more uh, egalitarian on high expectations for everyone's sexual integrity. You don't get a pass because you're a man, um, and whether that's in Greco-Roman or Jewish culture. And actually, that's why the lower classes and women flocked to the church. A lot of the early church growth was lots of women and lower classes because they were so dignified and had agency now and uh, their bodies mattered they could not just be taken advantage of um so yeah praise god for that hope i answered that um if i didn't throw more questions on if there if i if you ask that question or if you think hey thanks for that answer i'm curious to know more feel free to ask like the same question for next week like hey you mentioned this unpack it a little more glad to do that just try not to keep this too long um, next question, why does the Bible give a concession for the permanence of marriage by allowing for divorce, but not other aspects of marriage like monogamy and sexual difference, for example? Why does the Bible give a concession for the permanence of marriage, but not other aspects? Um, so, you know, this is playing off. I've kind of given Jesus's definition of marriage based on it was a conversation about divorce. But per usual, Jesus wants to talk about a bigger picture. 
Okay, you're asking about divorce. What's a good divorce? Let me give you the real take. What's marriage even for? Let's go back to the beginning. For Genesis 1-2, what's marriage for? What's sex for? Where does it belong? And then how does divorce fit into that? And so I would argue that, yeah, the Bible does give concession for divorce. Okay, the ideal is permanence, monogamy, sexual difference, lifelong covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. Um, the Bible gives a concession for divorce. That's one ideal that is kind of allowed to be let go. So the question would be, why not others? Uh, why not give some concession to more than one person? Have polyamory, uh, polyamorous marriages, or why not give concession to same-sex relationships? That'd probably be the one that'd be more, we would want to find a way, you would, we'd be drawn to that, uh, to love our gay friends well. Um, I guess, you know, clearly there's not, there's not an answer to that question. We don't have a why in the Bible of like why divorce, but not uh, sexual difference. Um, so um, this is just me trying to, to grasp why I think that's going on. So I guess uh, the concession for divorce, when any of those couples enter into the marriage, uh, they're ideally entering into a commitment to the ideal. Hey, this is supposed to be permanent. This is supposed to be between a man and a woman, just two of us, and that's it. Uh, and then divorce is given a, as a concession when one partner, potentially both partners, but when one partner demonstrates a stubborn, unrepentant heart and heart uh, in the covenant, likely shown through abuse or neglect or um, adultery, those kind of things. Um, and divorce is given as a concession for the victim to be freed from that and the marriage to be dissolved and um, for grace to empower them to be able to start over. And in those situations with valid divorce, I think comes valid remarriage. Invalid divorce may lead to a criticism of, of the remarriage. But I think that that is a concession to an ideal that wasn't met well at when they committed to it up front. Whereas monogamy and sexual difference that is not like a concession when things is not working out later on. It's like up front at the beginning to say, hey, from the start, that's purposely from the beginning, not attempt to do what marriage is about. Uh, lifelong permanence between a man and a woman. Let's, let's begin it deliberately avoiding one of those prerequisites. So to, to talk about that with permanence, it'd be like saying, I want to start this marriage with my wife, but purposely, hey, you know what? I'm a person that doesn't like long-term. Uh, I'm going to devote myself to this, sign the paperwork, have the ceremony, but we are purposely going to get divorced in five years. We would say, absolutely not. But you would say, hey, I'm the kind of person that doesn't like long longevity. I'm the kind of person that wants change. So what? We're not going to like grant the concession for purposefully going against that. And I think that would be a more, that would be a better analogy for this question of why I think, um, the Bible doesn't give much concession for polygamy, polyamory, or same-sex relationships, but does give concession for divorce when into the marriage that was well-intended from the start, one of the partners has a heart and heart and is doing harm. It's to say, you as the victim don't have to stay bound to that. You are free to get out of that to stop the harm if they don't repent. Um, I think that's the, the heart God has for divorce. It's not so much, why is he the double standard? He's saying, no, there's a victim here and we want to free them. That's my take. Um, I've released that to you. 
Um, I don't think there is a longer why than that given in the, in the scriptures. Um, and I choose to trust, choose to trust that. Next question. If singleness is the ideal, according to Paul, why did God design creation with Adam and Eve being married and have that be the original design? If singleness is the ideal, according to Paul, why did God design creation with Adam and Eve being married and have that be the original design? I'm trying to think about this. I'm not so sure. I think singleness is an ideal. I'm not so sure it's the ideal. I'm even wondering how I've communicated that in recent weeks. Um, I think it's, well, I guess two, two, a couple of different analogies here. Um, I think, uh, I guess it's similar to the whole like black lives matter versus all lives matter. Maybe I'm opening up a new can of worms here, but so be it. We're, we're in this kind of heaviness anyway. But to say black lives matter is to correct against the fact that for centuries in our country, black lives were not treated with equal dignity. So it's not saying black lives matter in contrast to other lives that don't. It's saying, hey, we've, we've had a history of an, an imbalance here where white lives were seen to matter differently than black lives. So when I say black lives matter, I'm, I'm not trying to say matter more. I'm trying to say they've been neglected and, and mistreated. And so let's even the playing field, so to speak. I actually think that's a bit more the heart of First Corinthians 7. I do think the early church in the second, third and fourth centuries for sure made singleness the ideal. Absolutely. So that's how they read Paul um, for sure would have made it the, the top tier ideal. I think Paul's more overcorrecting a an overwhelming preference for marriage. And I think I'm similarly trying to do that. We've had an overly ideal approach to marriage and romantic relationships and sex. And I would like to, and singleness needs to be raised up to be as good as, if not better than, marriage. So that's part of the deal. I don't know if, how much I would tr- quite elevate it to the absolute ideal. It's bad if you're married. Um, I think is elevating it. Second thing is, I do think there is a um, a time in Christian in in the history of God's relationship with His people, this close to eschatology to the end times, where singleness is a sign of where we are, that um, where we are in God's plan for His people, that when He made a promise to the people of Israel, that He would give them a nation. He made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He'll give them a nation of people. He'll give those people a land. And through this people and this land, uh, he would eventually bless all peoples and all lands. And so for that promise in the Old Testament to come to fruition, it did involve a... um, To keep that promise, it definitely involved the people of Israel having physical descendants. Uh, so them having children, multiplying children, was a sign of the promise ongoing. And so there's reason why marriage and bearing children were seen as such a high value and a need for, that's how you participate in and anticipate the promises of God. We keep having children, and through our children, God is going to one day bless all nations. But even within that, there's a promise made in Isaiah 56. Hey, even eunuchs, even people without Marriages without sex, without children are going to have a name that lasts forever and they will be able to belong in God's presence in the temple. Um, 
And so there's a looking forward that one day when he would accomplish his promises through Israel, it would open up a new status uh, of God's people where having children is no longer depended upon to further the promise. Jesus then demonstrates that by being a single savior. And then that teaching in Matthew 19 to say, hey, you now no longer have to be married. You don't have to accept that teaching. You can feel free to be a eunuch for the kingdom of God. You can be single and unmarried purposefully and just serve God and God's purposes and participate fully in the promises of God. And so I think it is the singleness that has become an ideal on this side of the cross is a sign of where we are in God's history with his people and that we are now in the final stages of his promises being fulfilled. And now those promises are no longer tied to physical children and physical descendants because they are rooted in the spirit and, uh, and uh, expanded through witnessing of the gospel and, and new people coming to Jesus in that. And so singles now testify to that future in heaven where there won't be marriage or children and procreation, but where we will all be an intimate relationship with one another and with God and sex and, and procreation will no longer be required. So singleness now becomes an ideal because of that. And I guess a, th- a third piece of that question I want to talk about is just, um, I think the original design of man not meaning to be alone is not, is not, an emphasis on a a romantic partner, but on being a part of a community in general. And when there's only one person, Adam, the beginnings of that community becoming to exist involved marriage and procreation. And that becomes still a key way, a key grounding point in communities. But I don't think the emphasis is so much on uh, romantic partnerships, but in you need a community, you need family. And uh, I get there by way of Jesus and Paul seeming to emphasize that you can have a full, flourishing, fulfilling life without romantic partnership and without sex, but you can't without community. And so they both privilege belonging to the family of God and belonging to the church as greater than marriage in terms of its contribution to our intimacy and friendship, which is a challenge to the marrieds to not find their full community needs in just their spouse, but to find it within the church as a whole. And, um, and a challenge to us all not to idolize romantic partnerships as the, as the full ideal to get that. So those are the kind of the three parts of that question I'm going to talk about. Just how much is singleness the ideal in general versus Paul trying to overcorrect not to mention to speak to the Corinthian situation of there's a famine in the land. And like for that time, it's almost like if you had a massive tragedy, probably not the time to be setting up a house, being married and have children. So I think that's another reason why he privileges singleness. So to what extent is it an ideal versus the ideal versus an overcorrection? The second piece is as it has become an ideal, how much of that is because of the stage we are in and God's promises being fulfilled, like the stage of that of post Jesus the promises to Israel being fulfilled. And then the third piece of this question is related to how much is marriage and romantic partnerships, the emphasis of it's not good for man to be alone in Genesis 1 and 2 versus how much is it about community formation in general of which marriage is a part, but not the only part. Um, that would be the three pieces that I would try to talk about there. A lot of questions. Uh, I talked kind of fast and tried to hit the highlights uh, maybe listen on on slow speed for my, my stuff to work out. But again, I release all this to you. 
glad to hear more. If you if there were parts of those questions that you want to ask more about, feel free to post that too. Say, hey, you mentioned this last week. Can you talk more about it? Say it again, different words. I realize uh, my words are not always perfect. Communication is not always perfect. Glad to always be learning with that. So um, I say all this out of love. I engage in this dialogue out of love. I release it and submit it to you. Uh, I'm not trying to control how anyone thinks or lives. Um, love you all dearly. So glad to be a part of this church and to be your pastor. It's a privilege to get invited into these rich conversations with you. Hope you have a good week and I'll see you Sunday.